It's good to be back here again, and it's good to see you. So we're doing three talks, as has already been said, on Philippians chapter 3. Why Philippians chapter 3? Because it's been a massive chapter in my life that the Lord has used significantly. But as we said last week, a few other reasons. It gives us a story of a person, Paul, and a lot of truth about how the Lord worked in his life and what he was striving toward, that we can, an example that we can follow. And also because it brings us back to what matters most. Now, I wonder what you eat for breakfast. Uh, I'm one of these guys who's not typically known to be a man of routine. Uh, but when it comes to breakfast, I am. Every day, I eat the same thing without fail. I eat Weetabix. Now, I have adjusted to Weetabix from the Australian version of Weetabix or whatever kind of brand equivalent Weetabix you get from a different store. But, um, you know, there are mornings when a more tasty alternative seems tempting. You know, a sugar hit, a donut or something like that seems tempting. But I know what I need. I know what I need, and that is I need these Weetabix again because they keep me ticking on as I need to be. Now, when we come to this passage, it's tempting for me to come up here and preach to you about a passage that maybe I can buzz you with a sugar hit of some new theological insight. Uh, but, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think about the thing that we need to hear the most is to deepen in the truth that we've already heard. Not to hear something new, but to deepen in what we've already heard. And there are some messages that we need to hear again and again. And this message today is one of those. What is that message? It's a message so central to our faith. Uh, it's so essential to us entering God's kingdom. And it's so easily polluted that we need to really hear it again and again and deepen in it. So it's totally fine for me if you've heard it before. In fact, it was actually fine for Paul. If you look at verse 1 of this chapter, you'll see that. He says, To write the same things to you is no trouble for me. In fact, you know, that's not a unique thing to Paul. You see other apostles doing it too. I'll just show you a couple more verses that show this. 1 Peter 2 verse 12. Peter says, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth that you have. And then you also see the Apostle John saying a similar thing in 1 John 2, 7. He says, dear friends, I'm not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you've heard. So if it's good for the Apostles to give you Weetabix again and again, and instead of a donut, well, it's good for me too. And what is this message today? It's this, that we need to pursue a righteousness that comes only through our union with Christ by faith in him alone. That's our message today. We need to pursue this righteousness that you can only get through Christ, no other way, through faith in him and by our union with him. It's the only way we can get this. Now, first of all, by really understanding what that means, what do we mean by righteousness first? What do we mean by that? Now, I, don't, I haven't seen the old Bailey yet in London, but I've heard a lot about it. In fact, in primary school, we used to sing songs about people bound for Botany Bay and farewell to the old Bailey, and where you uh, consigned all the best and finest to Australia and sent them a couple hundred years ago. On the top of those, that, that court building... Uh, in London, there's a statue, Lady Justice. I wonder if you know what Lady Justice has in her hand. You probably do now, it's on the screen. A sword 
and some scales. Now, the sword represents judgment, you know, appropriate punishment, and the scales represent the weighing of deeds against the law, the just weighing of deeds in view of the law. Now, this term righteousness that we talk about is courtroom language. It's the language of guilt and innocence. When we say that we're righteous, what we mean is we're against a certain law, we're God's law, we're weighed in the scales and we're found just or innocent or not guilty. That's what the word righteous means. In fact, when we talk about this word, when we say you might justify yourself, make yourself not guilty. That's exactly the same Greek word in the Bible, same Greek root as this word righteous, make righteous. And so what we're talking about when we say we need to pursue a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ alone, we're saying that there is only one way to be weighed in God's scales and to be found not guilty, to be found innocent, to be found right with him. And that is through faith in Christ alone. That's the only way. It's not by anything good we can do. It's not by how strongly we feel about God. It's not by how much of a faithful Christian we might feel we are. It's not by how nice a person we think we are or others think we are. It's only through faith in Christ. Would you say that your standing is before God is based purely on Christ's merit or is it based on something else? That's what we're talking about today. The only way is to completely abandon hope in our own merit before God, to completely abandon it like a sinking ship, to get off it and to shift our hope entirely on Jesus' perfect record. And that's what today is all about. Have a look at Philippians 3, 8 to 9, and you'll see what is our central verse for today. Particularly verse 9 is our central verse. Here we go. Uh, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is found through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So Jesus offers us this incredibly expensive, impossible to attain gift and he offers it to us for free and that's the righteousness we're going to talk about today. It's Christ's righteousness offered to us for free, we get it through faith in him. There's no more urgent message in the world, there's no more wonderful message in the world and we need to pursue this. So we need to cherish it and protect it and grow up in it. Let's pray that the Lord would do that in us today. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this glorious message that by works of the law, no one can be justified, but we know, as it says even in Romans 3, a righteousness from you has been revealed. The Old Testament, the law and the prophets testify to it. This righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you, Father, that you sent your Son as a sacrifice of atonement and that if we put our trust in him, that we would be righteous before you. Please teach us more about the glory of this message and the importance of it, that we might pursue it. If we possess you already, if we know you already, Lord Jesus, may we deepen in this and treasure this message more, treasure you more because of what you've done for us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Right, first point here, a truth to guard at all costs. Now, in the First World War, there's been lots of stories, you know, 100 years since the start of the First World War. Uh, an army lieutenant, this is an Australian one, I'm sorry, it's just that I know the Australian sort of stuff. So he, I'm sure there's a, a thousand British kind of similar, similar kinds of orders. This is some, a set of orders that a lieutenant, a, a commander, wrote to his seven men to man a machine gun post and to not abandon this machine gun post at all costs. And March 1918, he wrote this special order of number one section, 13th of March 1918. One, this position will be held and the section will remain here until relieved. Two, the enemy cannot be allowed to interfere with this program. Three, if the section cannot remain here alive, it will remain here dead. But in any case, it will remain here. Four, should any man through shell shock or any other cause attempt to surrender, he will remain here dead. Five, should all guns be blown out, the section will use Mills bombs, that's grenades, something similar, and other novelties. Finally, the position as stated will be held. Lieutenant F.B. Bethune, OC number one section. Now, it's pretty hard to miss his main point, isn't it? And there are some positions that need to be held at all costs. There are some that we mustn't abandon. And there are lots in the Christian life that don't need to be held at all costs, and unfortunately, many do. And there are a few positions that we do need to hold at all costs, and this is one of them. And that's the teaching of being righteous in Christ by faith alone in him. So one position that we need to defend at all costs. One reason is because it's constantly under threat from all sides, from outside the church, from especially probably inside the church, inside uh, among people who claim to be Christians and are teaching something different, and also from within us, our fleshly desires. Have a look at verses 1 to 3. What does Paul say here? Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write these same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. A couple of things to take note of in these verses. The first is that Paul writes this whole section for them to stand firm in their faith. He says there in verse 1, to write the same things to you again, there's no trouble for me and it's a safeguard for you. This is his concern for the Philippians. He, he loves them, he delights in their faith, and he wants them to stand firm. And you can see at the end of this section, the same kind of verse. They're like bookends uh, on this section. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now, this is one of the most crazy chapter breaks you'll ever see in the Bible. Uh, the chapter break shouldn't be here, it should be one verse after. It says, chapter, Philippians 4, 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown... Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. So he's written all of chapter 3, and then he says again, this is how you stand firm. So he's writing to safeguard their faith and for them to stand firm. He wants them to hold on to their faith. How do we stand firm? As we saw last week, by treasuring Christ above all else. Another one is by holding on to this righteousness through faith alone in Christ and growing in it, and other ways that we'll talk about next week from the rest of the chapter. Note this second thing in this little, these three verses to notice about how committed Paul is to this teaching, and that is how strong his language is. 
Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. This is really strong language, isn't it? Who are these people that Paul's talking about so strongly against? They're people that are often known as Judaizers. They're Jewish Christians who are coming in uh, to the new believers and telling them that not only do they need to believe in Christ, but they also need to come under the Old Testament law. They need to be circumcised. Hence, you can see they're mutilators of the flesh, he calls them. They're saying that these people need to come under the law of Moses again. So they're distorting the gospel. They're turning people away from the cross of Christ to pursue a righteousness of their own through works. Now, Paul wrote a whole letter on this very point, a letter to the Galatians, and the language he uses there is equally strong. I don't know if you remember what he says in Galatians 1, 8 to 9. He says, but if anyone, if even we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we have preached to you, let him be under God's curse. As we have already said, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be under God's curse. Really strong language, isn't it? So Paul comes down very firmly on this teaching of justification by faith in Christ alone. Why does he guard it so ferociously? Because without this truth, we have no hope of being saved. Without it, we're lost. And the Reformation a few hundred years ago, 500 years ago, was on this very point, struggling on this very point. And a couple of quotes from some famous reformers, Luther and Calvin. Luther said this, this truth of righteousness through faith in Christ begets, nourishes, builds, preserves and defends the church of God and without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. And Calvin says, wherever the knowledge of it is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished, the church destroyed and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. Now, fallen man has this habit, this propensity of distorting this wonderful news and getting his greasy mitts on it, and turning back to reliance on our own works. All of the other religions do this. They focus on righteousness before God on our works. All of the pseudo-Christian cults, what do they have in common? That they focus on works. They undermine this truth. And any church or denomination that has lost the plot, whether it's the glory of the pastors or whether it's health and wealth and prosperity or whether it's some theological bandwagon, it's all, all of them have in common this one thing, that they shift aside this message of righteousness through faith in Christ alone. So we need to guard it at all costs, not just from outside, but also from within. And so here, our second main point here, putting confidence in the flesh, our main section, second main section in this talk. Um, at my secondary school, I think it was year nine, um, I remember getting our school yearbook. Now, every year we'd get one of these. And it was just a summary, lots of pictures for the year. And um, at, we, we would get stickers as well, for every, one sticker for every extracurricular activity we were involved in. And so, you know, if you were in a sport team like cricket, or basketball or whatever, you'd get a sticker for that, or debating, or student leadership, or whatever it was, chess, or whatever you were doing extracurricular. Now, I was very proud of myself one year because I got nine stickers. And I, would, I was very interested when I got my stickers of looking how, how many stickers everyone else got and comparing how many stickers. And I felt quite good about myself. It was a way of measuring how good I was compared to others. Now, it's pitiful and pathetic, isn't it? You know... 
The sobering thing, when I think about it, is that sometimes I catch myself still in the business of sticker collecting. I wonder if you ever do. I catch myself measuring against other people how good of a person I am. And I can see the tendency of myself to measure my righteousness against others by some self-made standard, whatever it might be. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul calls this putting confidence in the flesh. In other words, trusting in my own works, my own merit, my own performance to get right with God. And we're all in danger of it. Even as followers of Christ, we can often fall into this thinking. So we create a set of standards, a self-made set of standards, and we compare ourselves with others. And we convince ourselves by these that we're actually pretty good people, that maybe God is actually pleased with us because of these things. How would you say you're tempted to put confidence in the flesh? What are the ways that you can compare yourself to others or maybe be deceived into thinking that this aspect of you is pleasing to God in itself? What are some examples? There's an endless list. Maybe it's how educated we are. Maybe it's what school we went to. Maybe it's our social strata. Maybe it's how much money we have or how little money we have. Maybe it's Christian activity righteousness. I'm one of the faithful few who shows up to this early prayer meeting. Maybe it's Bible reading righteousness or maybe it's giving to charity righteousness. I support more needy children than other people do. Maybe it's environmental righteousness. My carbon footprint is less than other people's. Maybe it's political party righteousness or clean Christian righteousness. I don't smoke or drink or work on a Sunday better than other people. Maybe it's social savvy righteousness. I'm a bit more with it and easy to relate to than other people. Maybe it's I don't watch as much TV as other people righteousness. Maybe it's parent righteousness. My children are better behaved than others. Maybe it's shopping at Aldi righteousness. I'm a better steward of my money than these extravagant people who shop at more expensive places. Maybe it's Bible knowledge righteousness or doctrinal righteousness. I'm a Baptist or a Calvinist and we think we're better because of those things. There's an endless list, isn't there? What would you say you tend to measure yourself by against others? Our hearts are a breeding ground for it and you can see in verse 3, we're to put no confidence in the flesh. We're to put all of that away. And Paul gives us a few examples here in the next three verses about where he placed his own confidence. Have a look at verses 4 to 6. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. It seems like Paul's boasting, but we know from the next verse he considers all this rubbish. He's not proud of it. And Paul was an exemplary, 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 exemplary Jew, a textbook example of what a good Pharisee looked like. He had the pedigree, he was born into the right family, he was trained under this prominent teacher Gamaliel, he kept the law to the letter, he lived it out passionately, pursuing Christians to prison. If anyone was going to enter the kingdom of God in their own performance, it was Paul. At least that's how he saw it. But remember what Jesus said, Matthew 5.20, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, But I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so there's a standard that we need to achieve here that's above Paul in all of his pious religious efforts. How on earth are we going to get that standard? 
But Paul's standards didn't come close to being good enough. How good do you need to be to enter the kingdom of heaven? You need to be perfect. That's the truth. How good do you need to be? Not a very good Christian. You need to be perfect in every single way. Now, how is that going to happen? And that's what this message is all about for us. None of us can attain to it by our own works. Even the most ardently religious cannot attain to it. In fact, our own efforts are offensive to God if we're trying to attain to it in our own works. Isaiah 64, 6, our righteous acts, even our righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. Our best efforts are filthy to him because they're all stained with sin. And Paul realised this truth that all of these man-made standards were rubbish. Philippians 3, 8 and 9 again, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So not having, in verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own. We need to abandon our self-righteousness and we cannot enter God's kingdom if we do. It's as if the door... Unless we do, sorry. It's as if the door of the kingdom of God was a very low door and you can only enter it on your knees. And this can be difficult. It's like, uh, it's like asking a wealthy person to abandon his or her treasures and to become a beggar. That's what it's like to enter the kingdom of heaven. We need to abandon all of the things that we might hold on to, to be saved by and to embrace this one way in Christ. What did Jesus say? Another verse in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It's not those who think they have a righteousness already. It's those who are hungry for a righteousness they know they don't have. And we need to embrace the righteousness Christ offers, not by works. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't put your faith yet in Christ, maybe you're here this morning hearing this message and you haven't put your faith in Christ and your standing is on your own merit, then I would encourage you and call you and urge you to do so with absolute urgency is to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your righteousness. There's no, there's no hope for you in your own righteousness. The only way is to rest in what Jesus has done on the cross. Put your faith in him and abandon your own merit. He does offer us his perfect record. How does he? How do we gain Christ's perfect record? Let's talk about this. Our last Third point here, righteous in him. My boy Nathaniel has just started geocaching, geocaching. How do you say that word? C-A-C-H-E, caching, geocaching. Now, this is a, a kind of a thing that lots of kids are into and there's a website and people have hidden things all over Manchester and every other city in the world and you can go and find them and you get the app and you go and find these places. It's a good way to get to know a place. Um, sometimes they're big and sometimes they're small and you log your visit you know, and you can put a little knick-knack in there and exchange things. And so we found a few of them. And uh, there's one in Didsbury that we were looking for, right in the middle of Didsbury, that was apparently hidden in plain sight somewhere. And we looked for it and we couldn't find it. You know, sometimes the things hidden in plain sight are hardest to spot. And that's true here of one of the most central teachings in all of the New Testament. And It's sadly neglected and easily overlooked. What is that teaching? It's the truth of our union with Christ. And you can see it in these verses, but it's so easily missed. Two or three words in verse 9 are perhaps the most important of all. Where are they? It says in 
Philippians 3, 8 to 9, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. So those words, found in him, are really important. How do we gain Christ's righteousness? What happens when you put your trust in Jesus? We're united with him. How do we, how do we explain this? Uh, a, a minister called uh, Rory Shiner explains this really well with an illustration I'll use. Imagine you want to travel on a plane. Let's say you want to travel to New York. Now, how are you going to get to New York? You buy your ticket and you go to the airport. What does your relationship need to be with the plane in order to get to New York? Is it enough to be awed and inspired by the power of the plane and to watch it take off? Obviously not. Is it by acknowledging that the plane is able to get you there? No. Is it by being near the plane? Is it by knowing a lot about the plane and how it works? Is it by imitating the plane? That won't get you to New York. It won't do anything except make you look crazy. Is it by being motivated to follow the plane? It's not enough, is it? What's our relationship? What does our relationship need to be with the plane? There's only one way. Obviously, it's in the plane. We need to be in the plane. And this is exactly the same with our relationship with Christ. It's not enough to be inspired by him. It's not enough to be moved to follow his example. It's not enough to imitate him or agree with him. We need to be found in him. And that's the only way we can gain his righteousness. How does this happen? When someone puts their faith in Christ, an event of supernova proportions happens in the spiritual realm. And that is that a person is born again. They're crucified with Christ Their old self is crucified with him, as it says a lot of times in the scriptures, and a new person is raised with him through faith in Christ. So what happens when we're born again is that our old self is crucified with him and a new self is raised in union with Jesus. Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is union with Christ. Now, what that means is this, if you're in Christ if you're united with him, if you're found in him, everything that belongs to him belongs to you. I'm the vine, you are the branches, he says. His family status is yours. He's loved by the Father. You are loved by the Father in the same way. His inheritance is yours. His power is at work within you, it's yours. His righteousness is yours. Everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. And so, what do we know about Jesus? He walked the earth and he's the one person who kept the law perfectly. He's the one person who was perfect in every way. The only one to fulfill a righteousness by the law. He did it. He lived a perfect life. And he died on the cross as a substitute. So he takes my sin and my record upon himself, bears the punishment for it, and gives me the credit of his perfect life. So if you've put your trust in Christ, if you're found in him, his perfect life is yours. His righteousness is yours through union with him. When I was a teenager, I went to a golf day. I'm terrible at golf, by the way, really bad. And so anytime you go out to play golf and you invite me, I'll probably come just to watch, but I won't play. And it brings out the worst in me too. That's probably another reason. And on this day, it was done, this competition was in pairs, and so everyone played with a partner. And whoever scored the best for a particular hole, that was the score that was written down on the score sheet. 
And on one team, you had uh, an 11-year-old boy called Danny. And he was teamed up with a guy called Graham, who was the local champ, really good golfer. And in the end, Graham played a great round of golf, and they both won. Danny may not have scored a better hole than Graham for the entire time. He may not have contributed anything, but in the end, he justly received with Graham the trophy. Why? Because he was united together with Graham in his performance. So, too, with you. If you have been united with Christ, then on the basis of his perfect life, his perfect righteousness, you have received a perfect record before God. Now, that is amazing, glorious good news. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, just a few closing thoughts and applications here. One is that we need to pursue this righteousness. Paul seems to talk as if, well, he has attained it, this righteousness through faith, but then he also talks about pursuing it. I want to be found in him. He's pressing on toward it. Now, if you're in Christ and you already have this righteousness, you already know him, the challenge for us is to guard this truth. Guard it not just in its purity, not just in relying only on Christ for salvation, but also guarding it in terms of how precious it is, guarding its value. And we need to also examine our hearts to see what breeding self-righteousness may be there, might be present so that we can repent of it and take captive those thoughts and put no confidence in the flesh. And we also need to guard against the same problem in reverse. Maybe for you, you're, uh, temperamentally, you're, uh, you're more inclined not toward thinking you're better than everyone else but comparing and despairing about how terrible you are. That's the same problem in reverse. You're not necessarily relying on Christ and his righteousness as you need to be. You're still centred on self and this is the issue with, self, with uh, either pride or despair. It's still self-centred. Our centering needs to be on Christ and not on ourself. So we need to abandon any self-reliance, whether it's despair over our lack of righteousness or our perceived pride in our good righteousness. We need to abandon it. Three big tests of whether this truth is flourishing in our lives and our hearts and among us as a church. One would be how central the cross is in our lives and in our church. That's a great measure. How central is it? Because when the cross is lifted up, then Christ's righteousness through faith alone is lifted up and when the cross is put aside, this truth is put aside. Second, the presence of humility in our lives. And if you look at chapter 2, you'll see this the most clearly. Paul says if you, if, you have, if, if you really grasp what it is to be in Christ, then you won't think yourself better than anyone else, but you'll have this same attitude of Christ and make, who made himself nothing, went to the cross so if we really grasp the gospel, humility will be present in our lives. I think about these this words of maybe the best hymn, one of the best hymns ever written, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I'll just read these few lines that you may know. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gains I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Now, we need this, this presence of humility is a good indicator 
Not a high view of ourself or a low view, but a view away from self to Christ. And the third way is a rejoicing, a rejoicing in the Lord, a thankfulness over what he's done. Galatians 6.14, it says, May I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ my Lord, through which the world was crucified to me and I to the world. So, maybe a familiar message. But as I said last week, I'll say it again, our greatest need isn't to grasp something new, to get something new, but it's to grow more deeply in the reality of what we already possess in Christ. So pursue a righteousness found in him alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, when I look within, I see absolutely no capacity to uh, please you in myself. Uh, Lord, forgive us for all of the vain efforts uh, we have made to please you in our own works and try and be righteous in our own works. We do want to please you, Lord, but not to gain favour with you, but because you have already made us your own. We pray that we would press on to know you more, to uh, know the glorious riches of our uh, the treasure we have in Christ, the righteousness we have found in him. Lord, thank you for this amazing truth that we have been united through faith with you, that all that's yours is ours. This is amazing. Uh, It's humbling. May we live out the glorious reality of this truth. Rejoice in it. May there be a humility and a thankfulness in our lives, a pressing on to know more and to make known uh, this wonderful Saviour who has died and been risen for us. Uh, We pray in his name. Amen.